for me, I when I found out about my diagnosis, I just opened Spotify and I typed in bipolar. And mm -hmm. I listened to three podcasts and yours was one of them. You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. Welcome back to Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Thanks for joining me, and thank you to everyone who reached out with well wishes after the last installment. You all are super cool, and I totally appreciate you. As I discussed last time, I actually recorded a bunch of interviews prior to my unfortunate holiday incident. Today's installment features one of those recordings. On this one, we introduce my friend AR to the show. They are an individual living with bipolar type 1. Like so many others who have been on Bipolar Recorder, AR and I originally met through Twitter, and eventually they were interested in coming on the show to tell their story. AR is smart as hell. They were pursuing a doctorate at a major university in the United States prior to a bipolar episode that involved mania and psychosis. On today's show, AR tells us all about those experiences and where they are at now. There are some important content warnings for this one. This installment features some pretty heavy discussion around inpatient hospitalization and psychosis. It also mentions domestic violence and abusive relationships. This is a very eye-opening installment, and I'm sure you'll get a lot out of it. Let's go ahead and get started. I am joined by AR. They are an individual living in California with bipolar disorder, and they have decided to come on the show and talk about their experiences with this complicated condition. AR, how are you doing this evening? Hello, Hunter. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, today is actually a really good day mental health wise. I'm pretty happy about today. Um, but I did tell you, you know, last week I kind of had some issues with depression. Um, so I recently actually talked to my psychiatrist about that and we upped my um, depression meds. So I'm kind of looking forward to that, but you know, my meds are still in flux right now, I would okay. say. Okay. Got you. So you're still kind of nailing that down. And what is your formal diagnosis? Yeah. My formal diagnosis is bipolar one and I also have PTSD. Okay. Got you. How old were you when you were diagnosed with bipolar? Um, just last year. So I was 28. Uh, well, now okay. looking back, you know, like, especially when I was around 25, I was definitely experiencing hypersexuality and a lot of uh, manic symptoms, uh, you know, like, especially, but you don't notice it in grad school because you, you work eight hour days. So you're like manically working and you think I'm just getting shit done for academia, you know, 
And so it was really hard for me to notice manic symptoms. Uh, but the depression symptoms were a bit more obvious because I wouldn't want to get out of bed. I wouldn't want to shower and that kind of stuff. But I definitely lean more manic. Um, I definitely have. So I had a manic episode that was really bad last year when I was 28. And then I was hospitalized for that. And that's when I was formally diagnosed. Okay, got you. What kind of situations were you getting into during the uh, mania that led up to the hospitalization and subsequent diagnosis? Yeah, I actually deleted a bunch of Twitter posts. But if you had no- had me on Twitter at that time, you would have basically seen. It was huge, like, notions of grandiosity. I was like, I'm the baddest bitch in the world, you know, this kind of stuff. Um, and I was manic buying dresses. Um, and uh, I was at the time I was actually in an abusive relationship. So there was a lot of abuse kind of memories coming up from my childhood. And mm. so I had a lot going on. I also had a lot of gender identity issues going on at the time. Um, and so I, I didn't know what was the mania and what was really going on with me personally. Mm-hmm. at the time and i i just posted all this crazy stuff on twitter that like about my past ex- like with no context it would be like some trauma i had you know and so i my best friend called my mom and was like hey ar is acting weird mm-hmm. um so that was kind of the the like clicked you know that something was wrong what was the content of what you were posting specifically yeah. Um, a lot of it was actually AA stuff. And I went to like a couple of a bit like there was a I Alcoholics was Anonymous. Yes, I know. Right. It was okay. crazy. Um, I like it was not a good thing. You know, like, it's really not cool. Mm. Um, so I had no filter. Wow. It was crazy. Um, it, well, literally crazy. <laughs> Yeah, especially on a public format like that, social media can be really, really dangerous if you're if you're having a manic. You know, um, I actually deleted my old Facebook account that I had been using for you know like since ninth grade or whatever. After I had my manic episode, I ended up just deleting the entire Facebook account because there was so much crazy stuff on there that I just didn't want to accidentally stumble across again or have to think yeah. about again because yeah, and I had to wait until I was about three weeks out of the hospital to go back and look at that stuff and I was still yeah. like whoa what the fuck was I doing like it was so upsetting and embarrassing yeah and it also establishes a eerie timeline for how things escalate so that is kind of like from an archival standpoint <laughs> it can be interesting to go back through but like i um yeah i just deleted everything i uh eventually started new social media accounts that i am now a lot more careful about how i use them and what i post on there especially if i feel like i'm having an episode of some kind um so i yeah i'm 100% with you on that did you, what was the reaction of the people who you had been posting about? Did they, were you able to reconcile with them or? Yeah. Um, amazingly. Yes. Uh, I had really understanding friends Good, and that was really great for me. And especially because the people who are in AA, they know that I struggle with alcohol too. So they know that, you know, the bipolar plus the alcoholism, I wasn't in my right mind. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think the alcohol is like, I, I know for me, it's like the number one worst thing I can be doing, especially if I'm manic, because it just, as you know, like it gets so dangerous and so out of control and it just fuels and fuels and fuels until you are completely like burnt out in a terrible situation. Um, it exacerbates all of the under lying other symptoms like for me it really exacerbates paranoia sleep disruptions Mm -hmm. and so forth are you sober now from alcohol i am yes i've been sober uh a year and two months that's awesome congratulations that one year mark is pretty important how did you feel after one year of alcohol sobriety I was, I surprised myself (laughs) actually. I didn't think I could make it to a year. I remember, oh my gosh, I drank a lot in my early twenties. And I remember saying, you know, I don't know if I could, if, if like a doctor told me to quit drinking, I don't know if I could. And I said that then, Mm -hmm. and I thought that I still felt that way, but obviously, you know, my psychiatrist said, Hey, you know, with these meds and everything, if you quit drinking, that would be really, really beneficial to your, uh, to your (laughs) physical health. And so I, I couldn't ignore the doctor's orders. Um, And I was really surprised because alcohol has been such a big part of my life. It was kind of a brand. Like when I had a podcast, my brand was anytime I mentioned the patriarchy, you were supposed to drink because I like to talk about misogyny and feminist issues. And so, you know, there was very much like a culture of alcohol surrounding me. Mm -hmm. And it kind of stinks, you know, just being at a restaurant and seeing the drink menu and like being like, okay, well, do they have a mocktail? I mean, you know, you kind of have to, uh, the, the American culture is revolved around, revolves around, uh, intoxication of alcohol. Definitely. Yeah. I I would agree with that to a very large extent. Um, I, I think the, the fact that, when I go on Twitter or whatever, and I'm getting targeted advertisements for Bacardi, I'm kind of like, really, guys? Because <laughs> you could also be like showing me something about nutritional eating or something healthy, but it's just so normalized that, yes, here is this hard drug. It is, alcohol is a hard drug like heroin, like crystal meth. People don't think of it that way. There's not many drugs out there that you can straight up fucking die from for for just you know taking a few too many shots or a few too many hits. You know, um, you can literally die from alcohol intoxication, and the amount of overlap that it has with like driving fatalities with violent crime accidents. It's no joke. And I try not to get too like preachy about it because the reality is that there's plenty of people out there who can drink normally and to not have to worry about those sorts of things. You know, you, you can responsibly have a drink, of course, but for me, I'm not one of those people. I like, I'm the type of person who, when I drink, um, I really want to keep potentiating the level. Yeah. Yeah. And what I've said um, a bunch of times actually to my friends and also actually to my therapist is like, I think the really addictive thing about alcohol for me is that it's the feeling of the come up of the 
higher and higher and higher level of intoxication. Once you're at, like, once you do a few shots and you don't drink for a couple of hours, that sucks. Like who yeah. wants to do that? I would rather yeah. just keep doing shots until I am like basically blacked out. Yeah. Uh, my record was 27 shots. Of yeah. Tequila. Yeah. 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 And it, I played beer pong a lot. Who the hell knows how much beer I was drinking? <laughs> um, you know, and uh, I would, and I got into wine. I wanted to be like a sommelier. I wanted to know all the cool stuff about it. They make it like it's a science and like it's exciting and interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father is an alcoholic and what it's done to our family is not fun and interesting. Right. It, it's absolutely not. You know, you see these booze commercials and everyone's out having like a fun time and it's like attractive women and guys with lots of money and cars and everything. And then it's like Miller time. It's like, (laughs) it's like, you know what you're not seeing? That guy getting pulled over at 3 a.m. and fucking getting a DUI and losing his job and then becoming homeless. Like that's or the the hangover the next day, too. Sure. It's one of, you know, it has a lot of, um, and you can have withdrawals from it too. Yeah. You can, you can die from alcohol withdrawal. Yeah. And I know I have a friend whose father did die, um, from alcoholism and, you know, and, uh, she actually encouraged me to go to a, um, a meeting for families of alcoholics. And that was really helpful for me. Yeah. That sounds like it would really make a big impact. Um, for sure. And dying from alcoholism is like one of the most gnarly ways to go out, like liver failure and cirrhosis. It, it, I mean, Jesus Christ, I am, I, I can't imagine going through something like that uh, in your final days. What an awful way to go out. No judgments whatsoever to anybody who is still drinking or who thinks they may have a problem. I don't judge people. I think that For me personally, I've had to become completely abstinent from alcohol. I recognize that that may not be possible for everyone or not necessary for everyone, but it is a very well-known fact that substance abuse disorders tend to overlap with bipolar disorder. Absolutely. So let's tie this back to what we were talking about just a couple of minutes ago, which is how did you end up at the hospital after your, you said a friend had called your mom and your mom was, okay. Um, Could could we pick up from there? Yeah, sure. Um, So I was in Chicago at the time, actually um, living with uh, my then fiance now very much ex um, fiance. uh, And um, I really was doing all the Twitter stuff. My mom was on Twitter and she was like, what, you know, what the fuck is happening? And then my friend who's not even on Twitter called her because of the, we were talking on the phone and I was just, mm-hmm. first of all, I couldn't stop talking, you know, like mm-hmm. just free flowing ideas, no filter. And, you know, and she was like, whoa, you know, AR's talking about some crazy stuff. Yeah. Um, and so called my mom, I had to go to Oklahoma. So I had to fly while I was having a manic episode. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't slept for five days. Oh so gosh. I was, yeah, I was like, I don't know how much of any of my memories of that time is real at this point. Mm-hmm. It was pretty nuts. Um, but I came to Oklahoma and the worst thing happened to me, which is I had to be hospitalized in Oklahoma. 
mm-hmm. and um, has one of the worst healthcare systems in the nation. So I was sent to a state-funded hospital that was very much um, mostly for the homeless. I think it was me and one other person that had a home to go back to after um, and not some kind of, you know, arrangement that needed to be done with a social worker. Um, so I was in a place that uh, the most downtrodden of society, you know, spent their time in. And um, it really made me realize the intersection between homelessness and mental health. And, uh, you know, it made me really rethink the way that we like look at people who are obviously having hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I myself have had them, you know, I look at it completely differently. Um, so when I was in the hospital, it was tough because they like wake you up every 15 minutes with their yeah. And mm-hmm. that just, I didn't get it. Cause I was like, you tell me I need to sleep. And then <laughs> the sleep is so important with someone with bipolar disorder. And then you mm-hmm. wake me up every 15 minutes. So it felt kind of like torture a little bit, like yeah. sleep deprivation, torture. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, they had me on trazodone, so I was able to sleep. Um, but it was just like the feeling of um, no privacy really, yeah. really hurt me because I'm an only child. I've only grown up with the most of space and privacy and room to do my thing. Um, so I was really, uh, Im- I felt imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I went to the hospital, I didn't go there willingly. The cops actually had to pick me up. Okay. From my childhood home and handcuffed me. Yeah. Which so, was extremely traumatic. Why were the police called? My parents were trying to get me to go to the hospital and I wasn't, and I was screaming and throwing things and it was getting violent. Mm-hmm. Got you. I had a uh, similar experience with uh, getting detained after a very intense altercation with um, my dad. And I, I talk about this uh, very briefly and a couple of other podcasts that I've been on, but the situation had escalated to a point that was not physically violent, but there, I guess, was enough concern from the authorities as they were that, uh, you know, this guy could potentially be dangerous, you know? So yeah, lots of yelling, lots of agitation. Um, uh, my parents didn't see it, but I grabbed a knife. Oh, really? So it got, yeah. Did the cops so see I that? I got the taser pulled on me. Yeah. I didn't, not detonated, but they pulled the taser and, you know, I mean, if I was a person of color, they probably would have pulled the gun, but that's another story. Um, and I had to drop the knife and then, oh, I had to get down on my knees, which hurt and like put mm-hmm. my hands behind my mm-hmm. head. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? I thought I was getting arrested. Right. I didn't know that they were quote unquote, trying to help. Right. Which is why I think that during these kinds of calls, they need to send someone who's a healthcare professional, not just two cops who have had like a week's worth of training. Were they like, you're being detained or did they just kind of like handcuff you? They handcuffed me and I was yelling and yelling and they're like, you're not being arrested. You know, you're not being arrested. They kept saying that. Uh Um, But I still felt, you know, like I was being held against my will. Well, you were. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what was their tone like? Were they, uh, w- was it like trying to kind of mellow you out? Were they very authoritative? What What was the behavior of the police like? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Um, 
they were authoritative and the ones that talked to the one that talked to my parents they later they told me he was very like I understand I understand you know she's going through something we're sending her to the hospital she's not you know we don't know where she's going to be yet and they kind of scared my parents I know they had to tell them this but they're like hey when she comes out of this she might not want you to know where she is or want to talk to you so my parents are like oh shit you know we mm-hmm. may not even know where she is um, so that was really scary. And the cop, I remember he like put me in the car and buckled me in and I was having a panic attack. So I needed air. Mm-hmm. And so I like kept trying to get to the vent, which was on the other side of the back seat. And so I had to like ninja my way out of the seatbelt yeah. and like, and I like went over to the side and then he was starting to drive and he's like, we need to put your seatbelt back on. I was like, please just drive. I couldn't even explain that. Like I need air. I was mm-hmm. just so out of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, uh, as a matter of fact, that's like one of my worst fears that I've been thinking about lately. Um, because, uh, I'm not going to go into why, but yeah, the feeling of losing your breath, does that happen to you when you have a panic attack? Do you get a lot of like tightness in your chest and Absolutely. stuff? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, me like too. I can't breathe and or I'm breathing too fast, either one. Hyperventilating. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a fucking horrible situation. So we had this. Uh, so was it just the two cops, or were there paramedics and stuff too? No, there were just the two cops. Just the two cops. Interesting. Okay. So once you got to the hospital, how long did it take before you were able to uh, meet with a medical professional? Yeah. So they had some really great people there to calm me down, and they gave me something that had me chilling out I was like "Ooh, this is nice mm-hmm. <laughs> they chilled me out with something um and mm-hmm. uh I spoke to a psychiatrist about an hour later okay face to face and that was the first time I'd ever met with a psychiatrist were you still handcuffed uh no I told them I wasn't going to talk to anyone until I wasn't handcuffed anymore nice so they took the handcuffs off of me and I said okay now I'll talk um mm-hmm. so uh, the psychiatrist, I was still freaking out. So the psychiatrist was like, Oh wow. Okay. This is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously realized, you know, I was in distress and that I was having a lot of traumatic memories coming up. Did the psychiatrist try to calm you down by talking to you? Yes, definitely. What did they say? That I don't remember. But they were, they were, you know, you're safe here, like those kinds of stuff. I fucking hate it when they Which say you're safe there. Always no, you're feels not. a little. It always feels a little. It was kind of infantilizing. You're safe. That's why we have guns and tasers <laughs> and well, at handcuffs. That point, at that point, luckily, like the cops were gone. They dropped me off and left. I took the handcuffs off and left. Right, but did so, you feel safe when you were having a panic attack in the back no, of the squad car? Yeah, yeah no, exactly. You're, exactly. So when oh, you're safe. We're here to help you. It comes across as complete bullshit if you're someone who's been just fucking brought in the way you and I were. It's yeah. it's not helpful. It's very disingenuous, especially like for me, I was also having symptoms of psychosis and I was very convinced that the government was after me anyway. Uh-huh. And so it was like, oh, like here are your psychotic fears now realizing. And I handled it like a straight up G <laughs> because <laughs> I'm very, very good at emotionally regulating. Um And I know how to somewhat kind of control uh, the way I'm expressing myself, even when I'm 
manic, you know, to a certain extent. How safe overall did you feel in the hospital after the doctor had told you you were safe and gotten you to chill out a little bit? How uh, how were the next couple of days like and how long were you there for? Yeah, I was there for five days. And I think the fir- the one thing that made me feel unsafe was that we had to share rooms. So I didn't mm-hmm. have my own room. So I was like, you just lay me next to this person who could be violent. I don't know who they are um, or what they want. And luckily I got like, I had a roommate who was very depressive and just slept all day. Uh, I mean, awful for her, but for me, it was, you know, kind of nice to not have to worry about like a violent person, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, there was one person in there who I was threatened a couple times and I was hit in the back of my neck once by someone. Another patient? Another patient. Yeah. What happens then? There was a, um, uh, a trans kid that was there and I'm very passionate about trans kids. And so they, uh, she was confiding in me. And she was like, can I have a hug? And I said, of course you can. And so I gave a hug. Mm. And then she was like, you lay off her. And then like hit me in the neck and the body, you know, like the um, security was on it pretty quickly. But it was just like, like you're saying about feeling safe. Mm-hmm. I felt like I was like, it was, I was on the schoolyard and there was a bully or something. And they were like, hey, feel safe. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. When I was, uh, yeah, when I was hospitalized, uh, the first couple of nights I was there, uh, in addition to constantly being woken up by dumb fuck technicians who like, uh, I don't even know where to begin with my issues with that. But, um, first couple of nights I was there, there was this motherfucker who called himself Mr. Magoo and he, uh, was going through some kind of episode of some sort, literally nonstop rambling, like nonstop throughout the night, just talking about oh. insane shit. And I'm there also having an episode. Your own stuff. It, ha- yeah, exactly. Dealing with my own shit. And I was like, I cannot listen to this motherfucker. And after my patients had uh, dwindled, I went and I talked to the staff and I was like, I need to either like have a different area to sleep or you need to get this guy out of the room or something. And luckily, after I said that, they were able to move him. Um, So that was good. And then the other thing that happened is there were, uh, there were, first of all, lots of homeless people on the ward, like you were saying, uh, lots and lots of homeless people. It was very, very sad. And there was a guy who, how do I put this? He was a big dude and he liked to shove people. So you would be walking down the hallway and you would see this guy kind of like mad dogging you. And like, and I'm kind of like scoping him out, like, what the fuck? And another guy, another patient there was like, hey, just so you know, like that guy, like physically will touch you if like you go by him. And I was like, this is fucking insane. What? Like, this is supposed to be medical treatment? Are you fucking kidding me? I was told by someone, oh, see that guy? We called him Frenchie, and I actually became friends with him, but they were like, that's his table. Don't sit at his table unless he invites you. I'm like, oh my god, what the, is this like Mean Girls? What the (laughs) fuck is going on? I was like, there was that, and then there was also uh, the nonstop talking reminds me of the guy who thought he was the Joker, and Mm. he was just talking constantly about the Batman and about his plans. 
and everything. And I was so scared to say something, but I made friends with someone who, who, um, she was, uh, 18 and homeless. It was just awful. Her parents kicked her out and she had been in an institution like this. And she just looked up to him and said, would you shut the fuck up? And then he shut up. And I was like, oh my gosh, (laughs) I was so scared to say anything. And he just went, okay. And walked away. It was, and then the people who I didn't expect violence from would be violent. It was my judge of character was like completely gone there because I did, everyone was at completely different levels of sanity. Mm-hmm. So you just didn't know, like there was one old lady there. This is actually a sweet memory. If we can talk nice memories, Hunter, mm-hmm. um, she had dementia and so, and schizophrenia. So that's a really hard patient to take care of. Um, and so she would just walk the halls a certain way and touch the wall the same way. And that's all she did all day. And I didn't think she was listening to anything anyone was saying. But I was sitting there going, I really like these chips. These chips are good. I finally had a good snack, like for the first time in three days. And so I was like, you know, these chips are good. And she came over and just gave me her bag Aww. of chips. And I was like, oh, that is so sweet. You know, she probably doesn't remember her own name. Uh, but, you know, she heard that I like the chips. And so, you know, gave them to me. Yeah, small things like that when you're in a completely dystopian scenario really speak volumes. Um I survived on the TV too because they were playing Charmed and they were playing music videos from MTV. Mm-hmm. So I was like rocking out to Lil Nas X, you know, then watching Charmed, watching my witchy girls kick ass. So I, I, you know, I was really, I really liked that. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to talk about is the gender discrimination. Like the, there was a man, men only over here and women over here and someone who is gender non-conforming like me. Mm-hmm. I was automatically categorized as woman. So I was in the woman's ward mm-hmm. and the dudes TV often had better TV on. Like they had Mulan on, which is my favorite Disney movie. I was like, I- I'm so sad right now. Watching my favorite Disney movie would be amazing, but it's like, Oh, you can't go. Cause this is the male side. So I felt really like weird. Cause I was going through a lot of gender issues and this place was telling me, you know, female or male and that's it. It's a thing that would bother people, including me. It would, yeah, it it would definitely bother some people. And and um, with all sorts of sexualities, just going by male and female, that doesn't mean you're not going to have people trying to fuck. Because I know mm-hmm. that's what they're trying to stop, is the main thing they're trying to stop is sexual assault and, you know, violence. So that's why they check on you every, part of why they check on you every 15 minutes and why you can't go into other people's rooms. Mm-hmm. So um, I will say there's, one thing that really got my PTSD going, and that's uh, when they set off the alarm. So it, it was two, well, for example, it was 2 a.m. and there was someone having some sort of episode. And so they put on the alarm and they're like, stay in your room, stay in your room, stay in your room. And I'm like, I literally cannot stay in my room right now. I have to walk around or something because mm. there's this loud, you know? Yeah. And so that's when I went to the comfort room. I was like, put me in the comfort room because I can't take this shit. So what was have, the like, comfort room? It's basically a place for you to sit down and like chill out. And then, but it's okay. right next to the room for people who are having episodes. So I was hearing this banging, let me out, let me out. While I was sitting there trying to be comforted by a nurse who was like, you really need to return to your room. And I'm like, I don't care. I can't return to my room. So leave me here for a second. And they're like, we can't leave you. We have to watch you. I'm like, okay, then let me pace here. And like, I mess with my bracelets whenever mm-hmm. I'm you know, having like issues. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm messing with my bracelet. I'm breathing. Just like, give me a sec, you know? And that was probably the worst because 
the comfort room seemed like such an oxymoron, you know, at the time. Sounds like like it's right next to the room where someone is like pounding on the walls going insane. Yeah, it sounds uh, the comfort room. It just sounds very, um, I don't know, like it's like something from like a sci-fi novel where it's like, oh, the comfort room. And then it's actually like all your worst fears imaginable all in one place. It was kind of dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally dystopian. I I mean, you're basically, I mean, you're incarcerated there. You can't leave. You're at the mercy of people who really don't necessarily have your best interests in mind. And, Uh, you know, speaking of incarceration, there were a lot of people there who had been to jail. And I was like, how, how is this different? And they're like, it's not that different, actually. Yeah, if you can go out of your room, you know, but, uh, you know, you, you don't get that special hour or whatever, where you can actually get out of your cell. And they were like, but other than that, like, everything they tell you where to go when to go they're always watching you like mm-hmm. they said it feel, feels like prison have you ever read uh patient records or have you ever seen what hospital patient records look like no okay um so it basically the way they take notes on you and observe you when you're in the hospital they're basically taking notes about everything that you're doing anything that you're complying or not complying with and that impacts whether or not you get released basically yeah. so if you do go through and this is a this is a me thing but actually just earlier tonight i contacted a psychiatrist who had uh, dropped me many years ago shortly before i ended up in the hospital to get my patient records back. I'm curious to see if they still even have them on file. It's been over five years, so I don't know if they would even have it. Um, but my point being that it's a extremely creepy setting Yes. to have people psychologically trying to dismantle you based off of what 15 minutes of interaction with a with a psychiatrist or intake specialist or something it it just makes no sense so what were your ultimate takeaways from the hospitalization experience yeah it made me rethink my priorities in life um Mm -hmm. this is weird but i was a vegetarian for 11 years and after getting out of the hospital i went back to eating meat um because i felt like I was so limited that once I got out, I was like, no more rules. (laughs) I'm done with rules. So, you know, I'm, I started eating meat. I mean, I, I eat vegetarian like three times a week, but I'm not like forcing myself every day to, to not, you know, eat meat. So, uh, I still consider myself Buddhist too. So I didn't like change my religion. Um, but, uh, that was one of the takeaways is like, what are my priorities in life? You know what? And I realized how much sanity was like all like as long as I have my sanity you know that I feel like things could be good I didn't realize that you know once you know once it's lost also that your rights are kind of suspended a Mm -hmm. little bit for people who are quote-unquote sane you know Uh, uh they're all surrounding you and like they're um observing you and I felt like a lab rat in fact there was a time they give us 15 minutes of outside time a day and I was oh I'm so happy to be outside and they were like oh AR we need you in here I was like what the fuck I'm like outside now and they're like oh um you know your doctor or your your psychiatrist 
has a, you know, a protege who needs to do a practice interview. I'm like, do you have to do it right now? And how dare they select you as if that's your obligation to have to do that? Yeah. I mean, and I was, I was kind of yelling at them. I was like, this was my 15 minutes of time outside, you know? And it was just, it was so, and they were like, oh, well, you know, we picked you because you're very, um, what's the word they used? Like, I can, this is funny because I can't express myself. And what they said is I express myself well. Um, (laughs) So I'm concise or I, you know, am able to express what I'm going through well. And I, well, you know, I'm I'm just so glad you could help them. Um, Yeah. What a team player. Uh, Fuck those people. I I don't give a fuck about that sort of shit. Like, I I, I just, I, I can't fucking stand it. When you talk about human rights abuses, people think I sound like a crazy person, quote unquote, when I start talking about the systemic human rights abuses that people with disabilities and particularly people with mental health conditions suffer in the United States. And these are examples of that. I don't think a neurotypical person realizes what it's like to be a law-abiding citizen and then be detained by police and taken to an unfamiliar location that is effectively a jail Yeah. Um, when you're not really doing anything except acting fucking weird. Um, I, I know in your circumstance, it, it sounded like things were starting to get pretty dangerous in my circumstance too, things were escalating. Sure. But could I have simply been separated from that situation and not have been taken to a inpatient treatment facility and just been able to calm down a little bit and like reevaluate just kind of like chill for a second why did it have to escalate to you know cops guns handcuffs fucking all the good stuff that goes along with that yeah and i think i also learned you know we're talking about takeaways i learned a lot about the american health system Mm -hmm. and so in oklahoma and it really depends on your zip code and what state you live in. Yeah. You know, in Oklahoma, um, my mom was, before she told me to come back, you know, I was coming back and she's like, I'm going to get her an appointment with a psychiatrist, right? And they said, oh, it'll be four to six weeks. And she said, this is an emergency. They said, we'll take her to the emergency room. Well, if you're not going to the emergency room, like, you know, if, if you're not willing to go to the emergency room, then it has to be this big thing with cops. I can tell you, I tried going to the emergency room on my own twice, and they wouldn't take me. So it's like you have to—you have to literally have a psychotic episode. You yeah, you just, have like, to. It's yeah. like you have to like really get to a horrible level before you start getting anyone who's like, "Oh, this person might yeah. actually need resources," and then the resources they provide you are like draconian, like yeah. fucking one flew over the cuckoo's nest shit. I know that yeah. movie has a lot of inaccuracies in it but you get my point i'm sure i do get your point yeah (laughs) i do um yeah i also think that uh now that i'm living in california it's a it's quite different actually um i was able to see a psychiatrist within two days of calling um Mm -hmm. and i was able to see a psychiatrist not a nurse practitioner not a PA. This is not against them at all. They're very important to our healthcare system and they have really important jobs to do. 
But when you're someone with bipolar one, it's really, we need psychiatrists. We, we need specialists, you know, mm-hmm. but with bipolar people I, or people with bipolar, I think that we should obviously have a psychiatrist, you know, easily, easily access a psychiatrist. And I had to have a psychotic episode in order to even be assigned a psychiatrist in Oklahoma. And even mm-hmm. then, um, you know, they only kind of kept me for so long. Um, they, it's, and so they have like all the psychiatrists there at that one hospital. And if you want to like find someone who does private practice, it's, they're always full, but their nurse practitioner will help you. And if it's really bad, then they'll talk to the psychiatrist. Um, yeah, that's not going to work for someone who's having acute mania for a nurse practitioner to then have to consult with somebody else. It's like, you're talking about each day can make a really big difference. Um, I agree with you completely. I think it's important for people to understand the differences in qualifications and levels of expertise when it comes to, for example, the, even the difference between a like an MD and a PhD. There's a lot of people out there who don't know the difference, don't even know the distinction between those different types of doctor. Yeah. You know? And I think it gets really hard for lots of people to navigate the services that they need because for a serious mental illness, especially one as complicated as bipolar disorder, I really, really think it's important to be with a fully trained and licensed specialist to achieve a high quality of care. And that would be a psychiatrist, yeah. not not like a social worker. I don't fucking know. Because here's the other thing, though. There's such a resource constraint in this, in this country right now on the providers that are available. Some people have no alternative but to work with someone who has, for example, an MSW, Master's of Social Work, which is a lower level degree than, for example, a PhD or PsyD. It's... It's tricky. There's a lot of different facets to it. What is the number one aspect of hospitalization that stuck with you? Number one aspect. Let's see. Um, I think the lack of privacy is what really stuck with me. And it made me very, very happy that now I, I, um, I'm currently living in a house and I have a lot of privacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it was really, I was in a one bedroom apartment at the time of my manic episode. So it was, you know, so one of the things that got better, um, was the amount of room and that I have. And, uh, I think that it also, I, you know, you said one aspect, <laughs> no, uh, I but, mean, if you have more, that's fine. Yeah. And I, I think another aspect just is that I, a main takeaway that I took was just the, um, the absolute like crisis that is home, um, homeless mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, it was in my hometown in Oklahoma that I stayed and I've pretty much decided never to go back to Oklahoma. So mm-hmm. like, that's a kind of something that, and it's not just because of the hospital stay. Um, it's because of a lot of other factors, but anyway, main thing is my healthcare, you know, I need to see a psychiatrist and I need to have my meds. And I also want to see a therapist as well, which I recently started therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was able to have that, those things here in California. So, and, you know, back, so back in my hometown, back to the homelessness, just for one second, uh, 
I saw two people out of the hospital after being out. I saw one person and they like had their car back and they were doing well and they were bipolar like me and they were taking their meds. And I was really glad to see that. And then I saw another person who unfortunately had returned to the streets um, and was still was not taking their meds. And was I, I saw them and I greeted them and they were completely out of it. Like, you know, and I was like, oh, this is not good. Um, it really, it really broke my heart to see that. Um, and so I, I, I didn't realize how much, you know, um, the mental health care system is, is mostly is, is kind of the main, like, thing that's quote unquote, taking care of the homeless people. And yet it's so, so terribly ineffective. Yeah. Yeah, the homeless situation is extremely complicated. I worked in social services for about three years and had a lot of interaction with individuals who were unhoused or homeless. You know, I, I'm not even sure what like the politically correct term for that is these days, but uh, a lot of individuals who were living on the streets and yeah. really, really needed help. And the barriers that someone who has a serious mental illness and is living on the streets, the barriers that they are, are encountering to have any fucking chance of recovery or maybe getting a job or being able to provide for themselves, it's really low. Yeah. It's it's really low. And that is just a huge tragedy. And it's another thing that lots of people don't think about. And it's another common outcome. Well, I, I don't know if I should say common, but it is a very real outcome for many people who have serious mental illness and don't have like a safety net. They don't have like a savings account. They don't have mm -hmm. family who they can rely on. And very sadly, they end up on the streets without medication, without therapy. And they're yeah. the ones who need it more than anyone else. Like the, they are the most critical cases. So yeah. all sorts of problems uh, are pervasive. One example, I'm on something called Medi-Cal, which is the uh, California state run healthcare. And I know that sounds terrible, but it's actually really good. I've paid $0 for my meds or for my doctor's visits. Um, but their basic medical is what you have for the homeless people. And to get an appointment is a three month wait, at least just mm -hmm. to get an appointment anywhere for any, any issue. Yeah. Um, so people with an address, right. Who are able to apply for the County healthcare medical they can be seen in the same week, but you have to have an address. You have to physically have a home in order mm -hmm. to do that. So there, there are so many barriers that are set. And so they think, oh, what's this, these crazy, you know, I hate using the word crazy, but these, you know, crazy uh, homeless people, why don't they just take their meds? You know, it's, it's not that easy getting, getting them and then consistently getting the healthcare you need, not just when it's a crisis is hard. Or, or just getting on the right meds in general can take years and years for some people. And if you're not housed, then like, what are you going to do? You know? So you brought this up just a couple of moments ago, and I wanted to talk to you more about some positive vibes since we've been going through this highly intense trauma. By the way, did you feel physically tense at any point while we were just talking about all of that? 
a little bit of my shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. felt very tense in my chest and mm-hmm. I, I felt my heart rate elevated actually. Um, because like it's traumatizing stuff to talk about. It is. Y- you know, it, it's hard. Like I, I was saying earlier, I, I'm good at emotionally regulating, but talking about hospitalization and especially involuntary hospitalization seriously freaks me out. So let's transition to some good vibes, which would be that you are now in therapy for what I believe is the first time, right? Yeah, uh, I would say the first time really seeking it out and making it a part of my life. When I was in fifth grade, uh, they sent me to anger management and I had Mm -hmm. therapy there. uh, And I was really angry that they sent me to anger management, (laughs) which is kind of, um, you know, that's a little bit, uh, a bit ironic there. Um, and, uh, when I was 21, I went in and talked to a psych, uh, to a, pardon me, to a counselor at, at my university at the time. And, um, I went in and first of all, she said, I have anxiety and offered meds. Um, and then also she was very, um, pretty direct that I was in an abusive relationship. And at the time I was not ready to deal with that. So I just, I I said, I took the prescription, but I never filled it. And I just, I thought I can, you know, I can do it. It's fine. You know, I'm just a busy college student. There's a lot going on, but I can, you know, self-medicate with alcohol and, you know, um, it'll be okay. Not to get sidetracked, but would you like to share what type of program you were in, the type of degree you were pursuing? Oh, okay. Yes. Um, so I was working on my bachelor's when I, when I was, which was when I went in to go, you know, and I got the prescription, didn't fill it. Um, but then I did my master's in Colorado and then I worked on a PhD for three years at, in here in California. Yeah. And a PhD is no small undertaking. And for privacy reasons, we don't have to go into specifics, but you were studying a very advanced area that like most people would not even know where to begin with. So you're you're very highly educated, you're very intelligent and look at these conditions that we still live with, right? Yeah. These issues impact everybody from all socioeconomic backgrounds. So regardless, it's not just people who are on the street. It it can happen to anybody. In terms of the therapist who you're currently seeing, what are your impressions so far? Yeah, so we've only had one session, but um, she's very like respective of my gender identity, which is really important to me. And um, she also, I think she's very understanding. And the the most important thing is she's a good listener. You know, like yeah. you, you a lot of times you just want someone to listen to you. You know, mm-hmm. and you want to be open with someone without, you know, if they're your family or they're your friends, like you you just have a different relationship, you know, with your therapist. Um, I, I, cause you know, I kind of had that from fifth grade. Um, I, uh, Miss B was her name and she, you know, we had a good relationship. And so if you trust someone like, you know, then you can really be open with them and you can heal. Absolutely. What do you think the first thing you noticed about the therapist was Hmm. like a trait or quality that appealed to you? Yeah, um, I would say compassionate. Um, because I, I was talking about my difficulty with relationships with men, 
um, I am pansexual, so I'm attracted to anyone pretty much. Um, Mm -hmm. But my relationships with men have been particularly abusive. And so that's actually where we started was with that. Um, And so we're dealing with a lot of like um, memories of verbal abuse and memories of of, uh, times where I was put down and made to feel lesser than. Um, and so we're kind of going into that and how that's affected me now, you know, um, I do have, uh, imposter syndrome. I had it when I was in graduate school thinking, you know, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not good enough. Um, and so that's something I really want to work on with my therapist is, you know, the kind of self-confidence that is really comes from within and isn't, you know, this kind of manic confidence, which isn't real. You know, you think like, oh man, you know, I like, I was saying all sorts of stuff. Like I got job offers, stuff (laughs) like that. Nothing that was true. You know, I was like, I got this. Um, I want real confidence, you know, confidence that comes from knowing yourself and knowing kind of what you want in life. (laughs) It's so funny that you mentioned the false confidence thing. I've done something very similar, uh, when I was uh, on this fucking road trip that keeps coming up this season, I know this is the first interview that you and I have done together, but my manic road trip seems to be coming up a lot during this latest series of installments. But when I was- I always love hearing about it. (laughs) I do, I do. Because it's like when people ask, oh, so what's a manic episode like? I, a lot of times I'll just be like, well, my friend Hunter went on this crazy road trip. I'm like, oh, wow. (laughs) That's a lot of energy. It's like, yeah, that's the point. Not sleeping and all this manic energy. A lot of really strong out, like- High, strong. (laughs) High, strong- cocaine feeling energy yeah it's not great but um yeah so i was in austin at one point and uh i was going around telling people that i was like an exotic leather like designer oh my god i didn't know this this is the best part how have you not said this part before well i'm writing about it in my next memoir actually this next book that i'm working on goes into a lot more detail and for some reason i i was invented like this persona that i was just rolling with and i was doing it kind of as like a joke to myself where I was yeah. like, ha, 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 I'm just being like silly. I'm just like, ah. But um, then I, I think it crossed a threshold where I was actually just being a total dick and people were like, get, like, get away from me. Um, but it, it's funny how things like that happen. Uh, yeah. So I don't know. Um, I've done that too in the past. Yeah. I get it. I've been there. Yeah, the the that kind of confidence is uh, a little scary because you feel on top of the world and yet you're in such a tenuous position. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you're really on the edge um, of sanity. And yet you feel like for once, I felt like for once in my life, this cosmic puzzle came together and made sense. Like I kind of was at this level of enlightenment or intellectual, mm-hmm. you know, like um, understanding that others just weren't at. Yeah, I 1000% relate to that. I think being on the higher plane, feeling like people aren't on the same level, uh, but it's not, well, in terms of grandiosity, it's not 
for me, it wasn't necessarily a feeling of condescension. It was a feeling of like, I'm on to something that other people aren't seeing. And I want to share this with them and I'm going to run with it and I'm going to start a business and like bring it to the masses and all this other stuff. And then I'm going to make a billion dollars. You know, it was um, that sort of thing. And that's problematic. You mentioned paranoia earlier, and that actually made me think of, I thought that everyone, because I was in that uh, engaged relationship, I thought that everyone was, there was like this homophobic conspiracy to like trap me in a heterosexual relationship. Mm. So I thought like my mom was in on it and everything. Mm. And I thought my mom was like talking to my then fiance, like behind my back, like nothing that was happening, you know, but that's how it felt. Wow. Yeah, no, it's so crazy. Like I can relate to that because I had a similar thing, but instead of like a fiance situation, I thought my parents were like narking me out to police, Mm -hmm. uh, which eventually they were. But um, yeah, like I would, I would quote unquote, hear conversations that my dad was having uh, Mm -hmm. while I was hallucinating. I would have these auditory hallucinations that sounded like my dad speaking with people from another room. And uh, I was living with my parents at the time. But of course, this would happen when they weren't home. And I would just think that, oh my God, like my dad's talking to a police officer. There's a police officer in the house. They're coming to arrest me, blah, blah, blah. And it, it was very, very unsettling. Yeah. What outcomes are you looking to get from therapy? Is it primarily working through this trauma? Is it monitoring your bipolar symptoms? Is it something else entirely? Yeah, I think um, it's a very trauma-based therapy. And that's because I I specifically sought that because of my PTSD. It's been completely untreated. I Mm -hmm. haven't you know, tried anything except for meds. And so I, my bipolar is starting to become more managed, but my PTSD, like I'm still having terrible dreams. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm still having like flashbacks that almost that ruin my day really, you know? Um, And so I'm, I was, I'm really looking for treatment of that and I'm hoping for future relationships to be better. I want to have a better relationship with my dad. I want to have a better relationship with my friends. You know, I want to be more understanding, more, more compassionate, more, I listen more because, uh, you know, especially my friends, because I put them through a lot during that manic episode. So it's like, I want to use therapy to better myself and to show kind of, I'm not saying like it, it's how I look to other people, but I kind of want to show people that like, I am taking my mental health seriously, that I'm mm-hmm. not just kind of. Um, apologetic about my manic episode and I don't take responsibility for things, you know, like There's, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility, your mental health. Yeah. That's an interesting concept to grapple with. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it, but it, like it, it's a common perspective to have. Have you talked to your therapist about doing exposure therapy for the PTSD? I have not. It's something that I've heard about, but I don't, you know, I don't know enough um, to know if it would like have a feeling if it might work for me or something like that. I'm gonna, you know, just kind of take the first couple sessions as they come. Mm -hmm. And then maybe ask my therapist about a couple of things that, you know, something like exposure, something that, um, you know, there's that, 
light thing that they're doing now? EMDR. EMDR. And I've heard that that works really well if you focus on one memory, one really traumatic memory. Mm -hmm. And it helps your your body not respond to the memory as, you know, um, I'm not an expert. But it, it helps you not respond so traumatically to that memory. Um, it doesn't erase the memory, obviously. Um, but it kind of helps you, like, you know, helps your understanding of the memory and helps you with that, like that body tightness that we were talking about, you know, that you get and you get that with trauma. You just, it's, you kind of just tighten up. And there are a lot of memories I have that where I'm just, I, I feel it with my whole body, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's something that I really want to work on. I want to not be a slave of my emotions and my memories. And with bipolar disorder and PTSD, that's kind of hard to do. I can tell you that getting over those manic memories and the memories of the behaviors and actions and situations that you were exhibiting or that you went through, it's a difficult process. It's taken me many, many years, and it's something that I, I still have to really work on in order to find that sense of like inner stability and inner peace. When I got out of the hospital after I had quote unquote stabilized uh, or lied enough to the doctors that they had to let me go, I minimized the symptoms I was exhibiting and got the fuck out of there. And the first thing that I did, actually, uh, believe it or not, my parents picked me up from the hospital and we had to stop by a CVS to get prescriptions filled or something. And I had like $20 left in my wallet and I just used it to buy a six pack of Budweiser and cigarettes. And that was how my post hospitalization world began. And for the next six months, it was nothing but heavy drinking and the worst intrusive thoughts and flashbacks that I've experienced in my life. And I was just gritting my teeth. I wasn't taking any medication. I still didn't trust medication at that time. Yeah. And I wasn't working with therapists or psychiatrists. So it it was just a really, really intense situation. And the reason that I mentioned that is because even though it was so bad then, once I got into proper treatment, it made a world of difference. And it sounds like you're at a place where now you finally are in proper treatment. Like you've got a therapist, you've got a psychiatrist, you seem to be on a stable cocktail of medication that is helping you, which is fantastic. So don't get discouraged, but keep in mind, like some of these healing experiences take like years. Yeah. Like I'm it's crazy definitely in it for the long haul. Yeah. That's why it, after my, um, and my diagnosis, I knew I was going to need to get therapy, but I really put it off because I was still kind of going through some things in my mind of like some memories and what was real and what wasn't. That was the first thing I needed to do was yeah. what is a real memory and what is something that, cause I would literally like, for example, I had a false memory that I had a cousin who shot himself and like, I could, I could remember exactly what he looked like. And then he shot himself and that cousin doesn't exist. Yeah. And I remember seeing it, but it's not real. Um, So I kind of had to like get through the real, uh, 
I had to kind of gather myself before I could seek therapy. And I think I'm, you know, at that point where I know what's real and what's not. And I know what's real trauma that I need to work on. I got a level with you, AR. I think that this is one of the most interesting conversations to me personally that we've had on the podcast because your experience, the way you experience mania is extremely similar like in all sorts of different ways to what I have directly experienced to, you know, everyone experiences it differently. As we've been saying throughout this conversation, it's more like, it's more like we have parallels with each other, but it sounds like the sort of things that trigger you and that you carry with you are kind of along my wavelength too. So this is just very, very interesting. And I wanted to ask you this as well. Do any of those psychotic memories still feel real? Do you believe any aspect of them? Because I do, like in my own experience. If I'm being honest, yes, there's still a couple that I have to like catch myself on. I'll be thinking like, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. And then no, like, for example, I, and it's not even, this wouldn't be a real memory. This would just be a delusion, but I was convinced that, that this guy that I knew like wanted to marry me and have my babies and he Mm -hmm. did it. And, and to have his babies, you know, <laughs> I was like, ha, he can have my babies. That's, that's <laughs> a feminist way. Anyway. Um, but yeah, I was convinced that that was what, you know, and I, I was convinced he had a crush on me and he doesn't. And so I still like, even just a couple weeks ago, I was like, oh yeah, but he's, he said that because he likes me. I'm like, wait, no, that's not true. Mm. So, and these actually, that notion that he liked me was kind of egged on by my fiance. And I think my my ex fiance, I think he has some issues mentally because with mental health, because, um, he like actually made my psychosis worse. He like egged it on in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Was he like gaslighting you? Oh my God. You have no idea about the amount of gaslighting, like the amount of gas that was lighting that was produced could like light room. (laughs) It was so much gaslighting. It was, you know, Oh, I didn't say that. Or I don't, what I hate is I don't remember that because Mm -hmm. you can't tell someone then that they should feel bad about it because they quote unquote don't remember it. Yeah. And that's also with with alcohol, you know, that there will be people who will drink and then they'll do or say something and then they'll be like, oh, well, I was drunk. I don't remember that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, but you should still take responsibility for your own actions. Yeah. Yeah. Gaslighting for people who don't mm-hmm. know is when someone is trying to make you feel as if you're losing your mind when you're really not. And it's a very common thing that you see Abuser with tactic. abusers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's a very, um, you know, there are a lot of ways that they also, um, abusers often, um, will change, like they'll tell the story that puts them in a really nice light. And then you'll talk to someone later and find out the the story from their perspective. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. Like what my, you know, fiance said or did, like, I can't believe he said or did that. But then mm-hmm. he would give it to me in like this really nice picture that wasn't true. And so I, I used his last name. I said, you're blanking a story, you know, you're, you're changing it. And mm-hmm. he would be like, oh, haha, I guess I am, you know. And it's like, oh my God. And, you know, he, and he would, I would say something and he would like talk, say he talked to someone and they said that I was wrong. And then I talked to that person. They're like, we never talked about that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, gaslighting, a lot of it is that it's, 
it's kind of trying to make it feel like you have a problem with what I'm doing because it's your problem, not because it's what I'm doing. It's a way of deflecting blame. And narcissists do it extremely well. It's a way of assigning blame to you as well, because it's as if you, it's as if their reaction is your fault. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. So from a psychological perspective, it's fucked. And I can't imagine having psychosis and, and then also actively being gaslit at the same time. So here's my thing. I really, I think, and this is something I have a lot of trouble with. I, I haven't really talked about it in therapy, so I guess I'll talk about it on the podcast for a second. But there's a couple of key incidents from when I was having a active psychotic manic episode in like, oh gosh, this would have been in like right before I got hospitalized in May of 2015. But there's a couple of incidents where I know that like, yes, I was experiencing delusion. Like now I know. I was like, okay, like this was a delusion. This was a hallucination. But there's a couple of things that even when I objectively look back at them, I'm like, that's really weird. Like that's suspiciously like something that I can't just explain away. There was a, I had some situations where I was driving around while manic and a guy approached me. Um, this was not on the road trip. This was right before I was in the hospital. This, uh, I, I was like convinced that undercover police cars had been following me around all day. And I pulled into a parking lot and I got out of my car and a guy who I didn't recognize approached me and he just said, I won't say what he said, but he said something to me that was like very strange. And I was like, hold on a second. And I still think back to that now, like seven or eight years later and I'm still like, was I actually being followed? Because that thing that guy said, like, there's no way he would have known about it. And if it was a hallucination, that is the most realistic hallucination I've ever had. Because I, it was broad daylight. I heard him clear mm -hmm. as day. Mm -hmm. And... It's not like it's not like something I can't get over. Like I don't lose sleep over it or anything, but it just it really weirds me out and it, it compels me. Yeah. I had times. a I had a lot of auditory hallucinations and one of them was on the phone. I would just hear them saying something that they were not saying. And I to this day remember that phone call and remember them saying it, but that's not what they, you know, they were not saying that. I don't know what they mm -hmm. were saying, but I talked to them later. I'm like, hey, did you blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, why would I say that? I would never say that to you. Mm -hmm. um, like, for example, you know, when I was kind of struggling with my gender identity, I, and I was going through that manic episode that lasted, you know, that I hadn't slept for five days and that hospitalized me. And I like could have sworn that my mom was saying all these like homophobic and transphobic things to me on the phone. And mm -hmm. she wasn't. Mm. So I heard all this, like, I, like the hate that I thought people had for me, I, you know, like I projected it and it made it out like, you know, I actually, everyone is in this like big homophobic conspiracy to, uh, to make me comply or something like that. Yeah. Like delusions of persecution. 
Yes. Delusions of persecution. Yeah. Um, I even, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> this is still really embarrassing to this day, but I called my best friend and left her a message while I was in the hospital. And I was like, this is my letters from Birmingham moment. <laughs> <laughs> that is fucking funny. I am a middle class white who like has not had any you know hardships really it was just it was insane that I did that literally uh so I'm (laughs) still embarrassed by that kind of stuff you know I'm like I can't believe I said that it just and to this day like you know I had one person say hey did you mean that blah 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 when you said that and I'm like I don't even remember saying that I said like some I just spread everyone's secrets it was really weird that like that's the way I decided to do it it was really strange. Speaking for me, I when I found out about my diagnosis, I just opened Spotify and I typed in bipolar. And mm. I listened to three podcasts and yours was one of them. Mm. And it made me feel not so alone. Mm. And I was hearing a lot of resonances. And um, what I love about your guests too is often I disagree with them. And I love kind of thinking yeah. about debates, like how would I like phrase my argument to them? You know, I'm, I was in academia, so I automatically think about kind of the discourse that that a podcast like this starts um and i think that's that is a good goal to have is something that can kind of i'm hoping even maybe this episode is helping someone right now i don't know um they're listening to this go wow ar's right about this or wow i don't really agree with ar about that but but their experience is there you know their experience mm-hmm. is, is recorded if you will yeah absolutely i i think that you're absolutely helping people by sharing your story i think that a lot of people aren't aware that you know ar could be walking down the street you would never know the sort of things that they've been through you know it, it you can never judge a book by its cover i'll I'll throw that cliche out there cliche. cliches yes. okay uh what kind of self-care are you practicing right now oh that's a great question I love doing my nails. My toes are always done. And lately I've been also having my fingernails always done. So I really like to, it's a way to chill out, watch some TV, just do my nails. Um, And I also um, do a lot of self-reflection and meditation. My Buddhism for me is self-care. And I've actually, a lot of the kind of like um, CRT and DBT, the, um, I know the dialectic behavioral therapy and what's CBT? Cognitive behavioral therapy. therapy. These kinds of things, I, I didn't quite like resonate with me until I started looking at them through Eastern practices. And Mm. I realized actually Hunter that I was self-medicating through meditation. I was actually, um, you know, I was confronting my bipolar and confronting my mind without knowing it. Mm -hmm. I was able, when I, you know, would have what I now know are anxiety attacks. I would like work on breathing, work on calming my mind, work on centering myself. Um, and so for me, self-care is also that yoga session with some meditation afterwards. Um, that really gets me. And my dog is my self-care. Mushroom. Yes. Um, he is a real blessing. And I think that uh, I he rescued me, even though he's a rescue dog. Um, he's wonderful. officially my emotional support animal. I have a letter and everything. Um, <laughs> so he's, uh, he's officially a working dog and he, he, um, does his job every day really well. That's fantastic. Oh, and also some self-care is not having toxic people in your life. I've had yeah. to cut out some people, um, 
a lot of family members too, um, because of just the, you know, homophobic things they would say or ask or because of, um, you know, abusive things that would be said that are obviously meant to tear me down, then I just Mm -hmm. don't talk to those people anymore. And I literally, I literally have just like my aunt, um, she messages me maybe every year trying to like establish contact and it's been five years and I have never responded to her. Wow. Um, So I, I think that to me is really self-care and I, there is not a day really that I miss the people I haven't talked to because I realize that the toxicity they were bringing into my life was actually bringing me down. I thought like, you know, my first ex, I thought I couldn't live without him. And then, you know, the, the day that we, after we broke up, I realized I can totally live without them. Right. (laughs) So, you know, I, I've had my ex fiance that I talked about, obviously I still don't talk to him. Um, uh, even though he, used one of those apps that makes your phone number come from a different phone number and tried to call me for a week straight. Yeah. And that was fucked up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and I still have my first ex from undergrad. I he still contacts me once a year yeah. after it's been eight years. And I, you know, it, we did not have a happy breakup. It was a very, very um, dramatic and very abusive and very like, it's not like we ended things friends. So it's weird that your abuser goes like, Hey, what's up? And of course, dead naming me. Hey, what's up? It's like, hi, get the fuck out of my face. I don't know. You know, I don't know who you think you are. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, that's a huge part of self-care is really looking at who is in your life and are they bringing like, like that one um, organizer, does this bring you joy? Right. So ask Mm -hmm. yourself, is this person making your life better? After you talk to them, do you feel exhausted? Do you feel like, maybe you, they were just talking about their shit the whole time and maybe they were shitting on you and you felt bad. Um, how often do they need you and do they, you know, kind of pay you back? I'm not saying that you have to keep points, but is this a one-way street? You know, mm-hmm. a lot of my friendships, um, you know, in undergrad and a lot of my family members, they expected full loyalty and would not give it back. So, yeah. You know, so I think that having toxic people in your life, and I think everyone listening to this has at least one toxic person in their life, just statistically, because, of, you know, you have what an average of, I think, you know, what, six to 10 friends, whatever, you know, um, and, and definitely you have one in your family. <laughs> That's for damn sure. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic advice. Are you working on any projects right now that you would like to plug for the audience? Um, I, so I had a nerdy podcast and I have a whole year of, of, um, content there and it's at Amy Blackfire, A-E-M-Y and then Blackfire with a Y. And that's just, it's about Avatar Last Airbender, Game of Thrones. Um, a little bit about Degrassi. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a Canadian TV drama. Uh, I talk about a lot of things there. Um, but I, uh, think that probably my personal Twitter, I also want to plug Amy, the China G-E-E-1 supposed to be geek but with a one um and that's where I show my mental health journey so that's where I'm gonna be like posting about um you know changing my meds I'm doing great or uh, not so great today so kind of updates and I really am getting more involved in mental health twitter which has been nice um although sometimes it's kind of toxic so you have to like choose your don't just follow everyone <laughs> is what I'm saying mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, but as far as personal projects, I am writing a, a fantasy novel. 
Um, and I am hoping to actually, uh, when I have something more solid, actually seek out an agent and see if I can't um, get that published. How far into the novel are you? I'm about uh, I'm about 150 pages into it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So it's it's a book. I mean, it's already yeah. like past novella length. Yeah. So um, it's definitely like a novel. And uh, I because I'm an overachiever, I already have like a trilogy planned. So it's <laughs> like one of three. Um, and I have like points where I like in the second book, I want this to happen. In the third book, I want that to happen. But I don't constrict myself by what I by what I originally intended. If the character is going some other place, like I just kind of let the story naturally unfold. And if it feels wrong, then I delete it and I write something else. And then if I don't like that, I edit it a little bit and then maybe delete it again. Um, and, you know, that's writing to me is you were talking about self-care earlier, you know, writing is really self-care for me. And I hadn't, I wrote today for the first time in two weeks and it felt amazing. And I just got one scene done. It was like a page and a half, but it made me feel like so good because I had been in a depressive episode. And yeah. so when I'm depressed, I don't write. When I'm manic, I write too much. And when I'm stable, I write a normal amount. <laughs> nice. Writing is definitely a great outlet. Obviously, I'm a big fan of writing to process things as well. So it, your podcast, what's the name of it again? Amy Blackfire, A-E-M-Y, and then Blackfire with a Y. It's a, it's a name that's like, if you know Game of Thrones, you would know the reference to like putting A-E in front of things. Like there are people named like Aegon and like um, Aemon and Aemond, like A-E. So I just changed, you know, my original name with that. Okay, got you. Well, we'll definitely put those in the episode description. As I always like to remind the audience, we can always find our guests' info in the episode descriptions. Okay, well, do you have any closing thoughts or anything for anyone? Uh, anything else you'd like to add? We've been actually going for well over an hour now. Oh my goodness, I the time just got away from me. I'm sorry about that. No, it's fine. We've been going for like an hour and a half. Wow. Um, yeah, then we should wrap up. <laughs> I want to like speak directly to people who have been newly diagnosed. Like I know it's really scary right now. And you might even feel a little like ashamed of yourself. Like you're, you're kind of insufficient and there's something wrong with you. And I just want to say that bipolar, being bipolar and, you know, having a serious mental illness is manageable now today. We have the, we have the technology, right? <laughs> we have ways um, to manage our mental health and, just because you're not on the right meds now and things are going like really bad and you're up and you're down, that doesn't mean that in a year you're going to be like that. It doesn't last forever. Mm -hmm. And so working with a psychologist and a psychiatrist, um, you really, with good help, you can't go wrong. You can definitely um, live with bi being bipolar and it won't be all your personality. You'll have your own personality and you'll just happen to be bipolar. Love it. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much for walking through all this with me. I think we got into some really hardcore stuff about hospitalization. Um, super brave of you to talk about that so openly. And I, I really, really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective on all of that. So this has been a great conversation. And I would just like to thank you one last time. Thank you, Hunter. Absolutely.
Thanks so much for listening. I'd like to thank AR for being so bold as to share their story on the show. Be sure to check out the episode descriptions for links to the projects they mentioned. Bipolar Recorder can be found on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder. I can be found on Twitter at HH Keegan. Be sure to tell your friends about this show and post it on social media. This helps us get the word out. And don't forget to check out BipolarRecorder.com if you'd like to make a financial contribution. My name is Hunter Keegan. This was installment 30 of Bipolar Recorder. Have a safe day, evening, or night, wherever you are. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.